good morning, church family. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Luke there in the New Testament, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Our text for today will be verses 24 through 38. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. As you're making your way there, I want to give a bit of an update uh, regarding our construction and building plans. This past week, there was a somewhat of a pre-construction meeting on site there over on the property, and as you've likely seen, things are underway. Uh, the field has been mowed, property has been surveyed, the excavator is on site, and Lord willing, we will start to see some dirt moving very soon. You know it's official when the portable toilet arrives, amen? <laughs> and so we are excited to see things moving in that direction. Hopefully for KCA's sake, they will move the toilet soon, but uh, nevertheless, we are about to see some activity and we're excited. It's been a long time in the making, and I wanna thank each of you for your faithfulness in giving and your prayers and your support as we anticipate this project moving forward. With that in mind now, let's turn our attention and uh, focus to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're gonna be picking up in verse 24. Uh, as we've been making our way through this Gospel, uh, we know that Jesus and his disciples just finished observing Passover, just finished instituting the Lord's Supper as we know it today. And right after that meal, Jesus drops somewhat of a big bomb on the disciples saying to them that one of them would betray him, which led some, which, which made for some tense discussion among the disciples. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 24. I actually want to back up in verse 23. So right after Jesus tells them there's going to be a betrayer among them, we read, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not that one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am, all, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. 
He said to them, but now let the one who has money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage this morning and we're confronted with these words of Jesus to his disciples in what would be some of the very last moments he would spend with them. Lord, these are words that were not only instructive for them in their day, but Lord, these are words that are instructive for us today. So we pray for now your spirit to open our minds and our hearts that you might give us understanding of what you would have to say and the things in which we are instructed by Lord, would you grant us grace to receive them this day that we might follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you knew your time was short and you had one last opportunity to say something to your friends and family, what would you say? It's kind of a heavy question, isn't it? Think, it, I think that through. I mean, there's a lot you could say. Uh, this past week, randomly enough, I was looking for a password and I told Jennifer, I was like, hey, by the way, just as a reminder, if you ever need our passwords, here's where you can find them in case I kill over. And so she was uh, encouraged by that, I'm sure. Uh, proceeded also to tell Rachel where those passwords were, so in case her mom forgot, they would know where to find them. Um, but I'm sure lots of things would rush through your mind if you knew for sure, for sure that maybe this was your final day or final week or final month. Lots of things. But hopefully by God's grace, one of the things that we would want to do would be to encourage our friends and family to persevere in following Jesus. And if our friends and family did not know Jesus, hopefully one of the things that we would want to encourage them and exhort them in would be to follow Jesus, to turn from their sins and to put their hope in him. We come to this passage this morning and what we find is Jesus with his disciples. The disciples have had quite a, a three-year run with Jesus. They've witnessed the miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've seen him compassionately care for others. They've watched him weep over Jerusalem and most recently shared Passover with him. And now their three-year run with Jesus was about to come to an abrupt end. And they're still somewhat clueless about that, though they've been told countless times. Jesus knows his time is short, and as such, he takes the time to instruct the disciples about some things that they needed to understand. Obviously, he's been doing that all the way until now, but now these are some of the last moments. Think about that. Some of the last moments the disciples would be in the room with Jesus. And he speaks into their lives with some things that they would need to not only understand, but apply as they would walk forward in the ministry to which Jesus had called them. We often refer to these passages, especially the one in John. John's got a long section of 
final words. It's often referred to as the final discourse. This is kind of Luke's shortened version of that, real shortened version of that. And so these are some of these final words that Jesus shares with them. So as we think about them this morning, I want us to walk through these final words that Jesus gives to his disciples before his betrayal and before his arrest, as Jesus covers four particular areas with his disciples so that they would not only be prepared, but that they would be prepared spiritually to walk forward in faithfulness. The four things that we're going to cover this morning, I'll give you up front, especially for some of you youth workers and youth in case you check out later. Number one, we're going to see a problem to correct. Two, a promise to encourage. Three, a prayer to sustain. And four, a plan to fulfill. These are all the areas that Jesus covers in regards to his pending betrayal and arrest as he's preparing his followers. Let's begin now with a problem to correct. We see that in verses 24 through 27. Again, back in verse 21, Jesus alarmingly announced that one of them would betray him, which naturally led to quite a bit of intense discussion around who that might be. You can imagine how that would have gone. Just imagine you gathered in a room with, with friends and, and, and maybe kind of the, the leader of that, that group says, one of you is going to betray me, how that would have fallen on your ears. So the disciples end up, as verse 23 says, they, they begin to question one another, which one of them it could be. Well, it's not going to be me. It's certainly not going to be me. Maybe it's you. So that led to that discussion. And then as that discussion continued to blossom, as we see in verse 24, they begin to argue with one another. That discussion about who it could be that might betray Jesus now leads to a dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Think about that. Here they are at Passover, sharing what would be their final moments with Jesus. And now all they could do was argue among themselves about who would be the greatest. Maturity at its finest, isn't it? They reveal one thing here, and that was this. Pride was still very much an issue that they needed to deal with, that needed confronting in their own hearts. I like what the Anglican preacher J.C. Ryle said. He said, such is the human heart always weak, always deceitful, always ready, even at the best times, to, tr to turn and engage in evil. That's what we find going on here in the hearts of the disciples. Even at the best time, at the Passover meal with Jesus, that their hearts were eager and ready to turn to engage in evil. Instead of harshly rebuking them at this point, Jesus does use this as an opportunity to correct them, to correct their distracted and prideful hearts. He, he tells them that if they want to pursue greatness, you're arguing about who's the greatest among you, if you really want to pursue greatness, here's what that looks like. Here's how you can do that. 
And so he instructs them by using somewhat of a contrasting picture. He says, the way that the world looks at greatness is radically different than the way I define greatness. Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. See the contrast. In the world, greatness is seen by those who have authority and exercise authority over those who are under them. But not so with you. If you want to be great, Jesus says, then let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. In that day, younger folk were always given the menial task of serving. Maybe some of you kids have that at home. Take out the trash, do the dishes, whatever. It was often, the younger you were, the kind of more of those undesirable tasks that you would be given. And Jesus says, that's exactly how you ought to be as a follower of Jesus. You've got the Gentiles who lord it over with authority in the world's eyes are seen as great, but in my kingdom, the way I define greatness is through humility and service. Jesus' point was crystal clear here, as disciples, as apostles, as those who would be sent out to serve him and to serve the cause of the gospel, their primary task, if they want to define it as greatness, fine, but if you want to pursue greatness, your calling is to be servants first. Jesus says, that's exactly what I've modeled for you. Talks about those who would gather at a table and those who would have positions at, at the table and, and those who would be seen great would be in certain positions at the table. But he says, but I'm among you as the one who serves. Remember in, in other accounts, he, he had washed their feet. He had humbled himself to serve them. He, he says in, other, in Mark 10 that, that he didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many, and that's exactly what he's calling his disciples to do, to, to, to pursue greatness defined by God, and that is a life given to humble service. He, he turns the world's idea of greatness upside down, doesn't he? This is not how it works normally in the world. In fact, the world would often see humility and servitude sometimes as weakness not greatness. Jesus calls us here to that. In fact, in the letter to the Philippians, the apostle Paul encourages just that very thing. He's writing to the church and he's encouraging the church there to live as those who have been recipients of the gospel. And he says in verse one, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he says, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus calls his followers to a life of humble, self-denying servitude. And when you give yourself to that, you will be great in the eyes of God. Maybe not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, you would be considered great. If you wanna pursue greatness, if you wanna argue about greatness, then give your life to that kind of living, a life of humble service. True greatness, Jesus says, as Christians, is not defined in worldly terms. True greatness is seen through your acts of humility and self-denial and service. It's seen in the dad or mom unwilling to sacrifice time with their kids to climb the corporate ladder quicker. It's seen by helping a coworker maybe do a project or get a task completed when it's not your responsibility. You'll never be acknowledged for that, but you see the opportunity to help, and so you give yourself to helping. It's seen as students in school respect their teachers and fellow classmates by doing what they're told and giving themselves for the good of others, even when it's not so popular there in school. There are many examples that we could think through about what true greatness would look like through humility and service, but again, the point is this, greatness is not defined in the world's terms, according to Jesus. You need to give yourself to this kind of life if you're going to follow me. Friends, we need to remember that greatness, true greatness, it's not defined by bullet points on a resume. It's demonstrated in the acts of humble service and self-denial to which Jesus has called his people to embrace. So when we think about this problem that the disciples had, that their problem was that they were too enamored with themselves. They, they couldn't get beyond themselves to think about what true greatness is. They were wanting to magnify and elevate themselves above all else. That they were wanting some rank, right? Disciple first class. <laughs> Jesus was like, come on. I'm calling you to follow in my shoes, to give yourself to service. But not only that, he, he gives a promise to encourage them. I want you to continue here in verse 28. I want you to think about this. Just think about the, the, the kindness of Jesus. I mean, the disciples, are, they're just being stupid here, if I could say that. That's kids, that's an appropriate use of that word, all right? They were, they were being irrational as far as their debate of, of, of who among them would be great. And Jesus had every right to, to come in pretty strong here, but he doesn't, he, he does confront their pride and call them to service, but then look what he does. He commends them. Verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's amazing. What grace that you see here exhibited in Jesus as he, as he speaks to his stubborn disciples. 
He says, look, you are those who have stayed the course with me. They've stood in solidarity with Jesus all the way until this point, and he's wanting to honor that. A couple of points that we find instructive here regarding Jesus' remarks. First of all, we, we do find this call to solidarity with Jesus. Jesus speaks of a kingdom, of a banquet, of a reward that was coming because they've continued with him. They've stayed the course. They've stood with Jesus all the way through. Now we know Judas will soon betray Jesus, that he is the betrayer. We know that Peter, as Jesus will say just a little bit later, will deny Jesus. And in some ways, after Jesus is arrested, all the disciples kind of scatter. But they all return, minus Judas. Even Peter repents and is restored. And they will continue on as we will see through the, or as you can read through the book of Acts. This word to the disciples here is, a, is, a, is an encouragement to them. Jesus is taking note that they've stayed the course with him. He's like, listen, despite your, your inability to understand all that I've tried to tell you, you've at least stayed the course. You, you've at least persevered. You, you've stayed with me, and that is commendable. That is encouraging. It's an encouragement to all of us as well as we are called to stand with Christ in a world that stands opposed to him. I think it's a reminder to us as we think about our calling as disciples to give our lives for the sake of Christ. It's a reminder to us that Jesus takes note of those who persevere with him. He takes note of that. No matter how unpopular it may be, no matter how difficult or challenging, no matter how much persecution you may have because of your standing with Christ, Jesus takes note of that. And through the example of these disciples, he is commending it to us as noteworthy and something that all of his people certainly would be called to pursue. As we stand in solidarity with Jesus, we take upon his name, his word, his mission, his call, his promises. And that's going to mean a lot of things, but, but one of the things that we must keep in mind when we stand with Christ in a world that's opposed to him, that's going to mean you and I are not going to fit nice and neatly into all of the world's categories that, that the world likes to put us in. If you, if you find yourself at home completely in a category that this world has defined, then you might want to look further at scripture because when you stand with Christ, you stand out in the world. And Jesus is taking note of that among his own disciples here. And as he recognizes the solidarity that they've had with him, he, number two, gives them this promise of reward. He takes note of that and he says, I'm going to reward that. You've stayed with me, he says, in my trials. Not, this was not easy stuff. I mean, there's been some great moments, right? There's been some great moments. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. Think about the calming of the storm, the raising of dead people. I mean, there's been some amazing things, but it's not been easy. And he says, because you have stayed with me, 
We get nervous about this reward language sometimes. I do, if I'm honest. I want to talk too much about reward because we don't want to have the wrong motives for following Jesus. Well, Jesus says here, hey, if you're faithful, I'm going to bless you. It's okay. You know, we want to serve for his glory. We want to serve with right motives, but we need to understand that Jesus does reward his people. We see that here, don't we? He says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. They receive a kingdom. Not only do they receive a kingdom, they're invited to a banquet. Look at that in verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Not just a table in the corner, my table, right? You've been to an event, you kind of get the table in the corner and you kind of feel, oh, well, maybe I'm important, maybe I'm not. Jesus says, you're gonna eat and drink at my table. Despite the fact that you're arguing among yourselves about who's the greatest, you're gonna be at my table. You're gonna be with me in my kingdom, at my table. And not only that, you're gonna sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know what all that means. Seems that Jesus is saying that, the, that the, the apostles are going to have some unique, special responsibility in the kingdom that's finally consummated. But, but he's telling them, I, I'm going to give you these things. Friends, that should be an encouragement to us because we've been appointed to the same kingdom. We've been invited to the same table. Our responsibilities, we're told in other, in other texts that, that we're going to be co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. I don't know if that means our responsibility is going to be similar but different than what the apostles are being promised here or, or very different or very similar. I don't know what all that means, but we're given very similar promises of reward. Friends, this is a blessing indeed. Regardless of what your specific reward will be when you are with Jesus, the greatest reward will be enjoying the fullness of God's presence and seeing him face to face. And so Jesus is reminding them, he's, he's encouraging them through this promise. He, he's saying, you've stayed with me, he's calling them to further perseverance because through perseverance, they are going to be given the kingdom and given a seat at the table and given responsibility in eternity. You could also say the implication here is that if you don't persevere and you don't stand in solidarity with Christ, you will not receive those things. So he gives this promise to encourage them, to remind them, to point them to, to that which is everlasting and, he, and, and, and ahead. The third thing that we see in this text is a prayer to sustain them. You see that in verses 31 through 34. Jesus has been talking to the disciples as a group and now he speaks directly to Peter here in verse 31. He calls him by name Simon, Simon. And another kind of alarming thing Jesus 
states here. He says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's pretty startling, isn't it? He notes here that Satan has taken a particular interest in Peter's demise and destruction. And Peter's like, verse 33, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. It, nah, I'm good. Like, I'm in this. I'm with you. Let's, let's, let's go, right? But Jesus responds, no, Peter, I'll tell you, but the rooster will not crow this day until you denied me three times, until three times you've denied that you know me. And many of us know the rest of the story. Just a quick look to verses 54 through 62. We see that Peter does exactly what Jesus predicted. Now, in this personal interaction with Peter, I want you to notice two things. I want you to see both a warning and a comfort here. First of all, the warning. The warning is, is easy to see because it's not just seen here. We've, we've seen it highlighted over the past few chapters. And it's simply this, that even those closest to Jesus are able to betray him. Both Judas and Peter would in their own way betray Jesus. Both were apostles, disciples. Judas did so for some pieces of silver. Peter will do so out of fear. Now, the one big difference we know is that Peter is restored. He does repent. He's restored eventually and, and continues on with, with Christ, whereas Judas does not. But again, the warning here is something that I think I need to hear. We need to hear even today. You can walk with Jesus for years and in a moment betray him. Let, let this be a, a check to our hearts today, not to frighten you, but to give you some sobering, rational judgment that, listen, sin is a whole lot worse than we often think it is. It's a whole lot more deceptive than we give it credit for. Peter couldn't fathom denying Jesus. It wasn't even a category in his mind. And that's exactly what he does. Not a month later, not two years later, that very day, he denies him. Brothers and sisters, let this be a reminder, a warning to us that we must never underestimate the deceptive nature of sin. Sin is always crouching at the door and can take hold of our hearts and minds in an instant and, and we can be led astray. You think about any sin, every sin really is a betrayal of Jesus, isn't it? We're saying yes to something that is opposed to Christ. So every sin is somewhat of a betrayal of Jesus, but let's let Peter's experience inform our own experience that you and I are never beyond completely turning our backs upon him. Should be a warning, a reminder. 
Christian, persevere in believing the gospel, persevere in holding fast to Christ because sin is deceptive, Satan is a liar, and you can in a moment say no and think Jesus is not who he said he is. Let this be a warning. But we also see a comfort. While Jesus warns Peter of his pending betrayal, he also says something very, very important, and that is in verse 32. I did not skip that verse. I'm coming back to it. Verse 32 ought to just jump off the page at you. He says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, not only does Jesus predict his denial, he predicts his restoration. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Friends, this would be the decisive difference in Peter's life. Yes, he would deny Jesus, but here's the beauty. The very one he denies is the very one who intercedes for him, who advocates in heaven on his behalf. You know how encouraging it is when, when someone texts you or calls you or tells you in person, especially out of the blue, hey, I've been praying for you. That's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, it's encouraging. It's huge. Now imagine Jesus saying, beloved, I have prayed for you. Jesus. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is huge. You might think, well, I'm sure that was good for Peter to hear. Good for him. But how is that good for me? Well, I would remind you that, that Jesus does the same thing for you and for me. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, my little children, John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Some of you needed to hear that today because your sin has clouded out the mercy and kindness of Christ to intercede on your behalf despite your own wicked and selfish heart. Now, if John would have stopped at the first part of that verse, if, if John would have just said, my little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin, period, that would be crushing. That would be crushing to us because then it would just, it would be paralyzing because we know we sin. We do need to be exhorted, right? But we also need hope. We also need comfort. We need the, to hear the second part of that verse. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland, in a chapter called An Advocate, says this. He says, consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude towards that dark pocket of your life that only you know? That over-dependence upon alcohol, the lost temper time and again, the shady business about your finances, the, the desire to please people that looks to others like niceness, but which you know is a fear of man. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? He goes on and says, he is our paraclete, our comforting defender. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it, when we sin. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Brothers and sisters, there is a constant spiritual battle waging in all our hearts. We have an enemy who desires our complete destruction. But the very one, the very one who crushed the head of the serpent sits in heaven interceding for us even in our darkest moments. I'm thankful for the warning, but I'm also thankful for the comfort that God gives us, that we too have an advocate, that we're not left to fend for ourselves in this life, that we are given a Holy Spirit and that we are given an advocate in heaven who prays on our behalf day after day after day, not after we've cleaned ourselves up, but despite our messes. In the midst of those moments when we are at our worst, Jesus is pleading his best on our behalf. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged by this prayer that sustains. We see that. As he shares with Peter. But then lastly, I want you to notice a plan, a plan to fulfill. After his one-on-one -on -one with Peter, Jesus moves back to address the whole. You see that in verse 35, and he said to them, he reminds them of the time before, back in Luke chapter nine, verse three, and 10, verse four, when he had sent them out, when he had sent the disciples out two by two and told them not to worry about money and stuff, like just go, I'm gonna supernaturally provide for you. He says, you remember that time? They're like, yep, I remember that time. He said, 
did you lack anything? They said, nothing, nothing. We even had some extra granola bars. It was, it was unreal. That's not in the text. Well, now things were going to be a little different. He, he's instructing them. He, he, he's saying, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. This time it's going to be different. This time you need to take account for the preparations you're going to need. Yes, God still supernaturally provides, but he's calling them because this is going to be a different sending out moment. He says, you need to make adequate preparations for what is to come. Why? Verse 37. He says, you need to do this for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And then Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Notice the, the certainty of the language here. Notice the, the certainty of the language Jesus is using. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled. What's about to happen to me must happen to me. You go read Isaiah 53 and you see the, 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 the horror of what Jesus would experience on our behalf as he is betrayed and arrested and crucified on a cross as Isaiah is predicting that will happen so many years before. Jesus here is pointing to this cross that he would be nailed to and because he would suffer in this way, his disciples needed to be prepared. Look at this text, look at the, this. the disciples never cease to amaze us, which should cause us to say we should never cease to amaze ourselves, right? In a, not in a good way. Look how the disciples respond. Jesus just said, listen, this time's gonna be different. You need to take account and be prepared for I tell you this scripture must be fulfilled. I'm going to have to die on a cross, basically is what he's told them. And they respond, uh, look, we've got two swords. What? And you can, that's what Jesus does. He says to them, it is enough. Or, you know, enough of this. They've totally misunderstood him. And at this point, he's done with their nonsense, right? I mean, he's just said, you need to be prepared. I'm going to die on a cross. And they're like, hey, we got two swords. One of them is going to take off an ear of somebody very soon. And Jesus is like, uh, you've missed it. Enough of this, let's move on. They don't hear Jesus quoting scripture. They, they hear swords and they take inventory. Look what we got. Jesus is preparing them and himself for the cross. They're preparing for war. It's a sad moment of just how dull-headed the disciples were. They took him literally when he was talking somewhat figuratively about the importance of being ready and having sufficient supply on their mission and ministry that was ahead. He's preparing them for what was to come. Things are about to radically change for them. First the cross, then a mission that would be met with hardship, persecution, and suffering. That's what they have awaiting them. 
And he's reminding them that to be a disciple in this world means you will have no friends in this world. You need to take care of yourself. You need to make sure you've got adequate supply and be ready for what's coming. And all of that is centered upon the work that he's going to accomplish on the cross. Friends, this is just a good lesson for us to see how careful we must be in listening to Jesus to see the importance of biblical fulfillment and to be prepared for missional engagement. Our mission has nothing to do with the sword. We got it wrong in the Crusades. What a dark moment in the history of the church. It has nothing to do with the sword. It has everything to do with the cross. It has everything to do with what Jesus is about to go and accomplish. That's what he's saying, I have to do this. And you need to be prepared after that happens to go forward preaching that message and making disciples of the nations. Friends, it's a word to us about not losing sight of what we are about as Christ followers. We, we can easily fall into the same trap as the disciples did. They're looking at their shiny swords <laughs> and Jesus is pointing them to a wooden cross. So it's such a reminder that may we not get distracted with the things of this world that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the great commission that we've been given. That we become so inwardly focused, that we become so, so worldly minded, that we forget, that we lose sight of the most important thing that we're called to love and pursue. Friends, we have been called to go forth advancing the gospel. We're gonna be met with spiritual warfare at every step of the way. The last thing we need to be doing is focused on how many swords we have in our arsenal. So he's calling them to be ready and to go forward in persevering faith. They're still not ready, but he moves on. Well, things, as we will see, quickly change. Jesus would soon be arrested and he would be crucified to a Roman cross. And the disciples, in the short term, would be alarmed, they would be nervous, they would be wondering what in the world has just happened, even though Jesus has tried to prepare them. But even though the hardships and the suffering and the obstacles would come for the disciples, so did victory. What they couldn't fully see at this moment and what we are able by the grace of God now to see as we look back is that the betrayal and arrest of Jesus would not mean the end, it was actually by the providence of God, part of the plan of God to bring redemption to the world. And as such, sinners can be promised a kingdom, be given an advocate in heaven and be set free from sin and death. So fellow believer, be encouraged in your walk with Jesus in this world. And as you hear his instruction, 
as you hear what he has to say to his disciples, let us be a people who are living out our days in persevering faith, but doing so through pursuing humble service. Let us be marked by what true greatness really means in this world, humbly serving one another, anticipating this promised reward with joy, resting in the grace of God that he's given us an advocate in heaven, and keeping our eyes on what matters most, the cross. May that be the kinds of disciples we are seeking to be in this life as we wait for the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, there is a lot that we can thank you for in this life. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have recorded for us in scripture words we need. Words that not only confront us, but sustain us, strengthen us, help us. And Lord, these are those kinds of words that we see today from this text. Lord, as your people who live in a very dark and chaotic and challenging world, we need to be a people who understand what you've called us to be. So Lord, would you help us to receive your word today with gratitude and joy? And Lord, would you help us to respond in faithfulness to what you've instructed this day? Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you have called us to, 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 to be yours. We rejoice that you've given us an opportunity to serve in this kingdom as we anticipate its fullness in the future. We rejoice that we have an advocate in heaven who prays for us in the hardest moments of this life. And that the plan that was promised in the Old Testament was accomplished in the new. And that the mission you've called us to engage in is one that continues on until Christ returns. So Lord, would you help us to stay focused upon the task at hand and to give you glory every step of the way. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.